Good morning. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but um, I've just been loving the fact that the rabbit brush is in bloom. It's my favorite thing in Nevada. And uh, yesterday I sneezed and my nose was so stuffed up that stuff came out of my eyes. It's really, really fun. Um, but uh, you didn't want to hear that, but I told you anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, fall, fall is here and I can't wait for it to freeze and the rabbit brush to die. I've never, I never wish death on anything quite as much as I do rabbit brush. But um, yeah, anyway, it's good to, be good, good to be here with you this morning. It really is good news that Jim and Jean shared this morning that there are members of this body that have been here for a long, long time that love the church so much that uh, when they think of uh, wh what assets they have and how they're going to pass them forward, uh, they, they thought of the church. I think that's really neat. Um, I also think that it's pretty amazing. If you guys don't know the work that Jim puts into uh, seeing through the process with the BLM, um, he is a bulldog, and he is tenacious, and he is persistent, and he has been at this for years. Um, so if you don't give Jim a pat on the back, do so. And then uh, keep that in your prayers. Uh, it really is, if, if we could figure out how to get that process, well, really, if the Lord would push that process forward so that we could own the land and uh, not have sort of uh, the BLM hanging over our head at certain points, it would be a real blessing to everybody here. It would also allow us to think about the future in a different way up on top of this hill and what do we want to do with the facilities and how do we want to use the facilities and what's the best way to reach these houses full of people uh, that are in this neighborhood around us now and um, what would, what, 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 how do we do that? Those are all things that we're thinking about. And if you, you know, a while back they talked about the church architect and how do we want to really use the facilities that we have and be good stewards of what God has given us um, for his kingdom. And, and so keep that in your prayers. As we look at the message today, that's actually, it's actually a little bit pertinent to what we're going to talk about today, that, that we would be a, a, a watchman, a watch house, so to speak, up on top of this hill where, uh, where God's word and God's truth moves from this place. And as we look at what Ezekiel is going to do, um, he's, as we've been going through this, path, this, uh, this book we saw in the first chapter, that God reveals himself to Ezekiel in a big vision. And he gets to see who God is, and, he, and, and we see that he rightly judges sin, and that he's sovereign, and that, <clears throat> which is the point of the message today, that he's sovereign, he's in control, and, and he has the ability to move people where they need to be, and he has the authority to speak what is true and what is false. That's a, that's a big point in today's message, that, that God has the authority to speak, this is right, and this is wrong. That's, that's his, because he's sovereign, he is the one who's in control. Um, but... Ezekiel has this vision of God, and then he gets a, a, a calling from God, and Ezekiel says, and God basically, he stands him on his feet, and he says he's going to empower him, and he's going to give him the words to speak, and then he, last week we saw that he commissions him, and he says, I want you to go on this mission with me, your job is to go to the exiles from the nation of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, and, and I want you to go to those exiles, and I want you to share with them some truth. It's going to be hard truth. They're probably not going to listen to you. They're stubborn. They're obstinate. They're dug in. They're stiff-necked. They probably won't listen. But I want you to go and I want you to share this truth. And so when we look at this passage today, the question that sort of comes to mind, and you'll hear this from people, is what right do you have to tell me about right and wrong? Have you heard that or not? What right do you have to tell me about right or wrong? You, you know, you walk into somebody's life and, and maybe you know them a little bit and you share with them, hey, I, I don't know that your life is headed in the best direction. Or maybe it's, it's just in general, we start talking about right and wrong and somebody says, well, what right do you have to tell me what's right and wrong? And within our culture, the answer is nobody has the right to tell me that. I can do what I want to do with my life. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. 
What right do you have to tell me about right and wrong? Now, on, on, uh, on Sunday night, we meet with, uh, with the high school students. And last week, I asked, the, I got in a small group with a, a group of uh, juniors and seniors in high school. And I asked them, I said, do you find Christianity exciting? Do you find Christianity exciting? And they sort of looked at me like, are we allowed to answer that honestly? And I said, please, answer it honestly. Tell me, what is it exciting? And they said, well, sometimes. Okay, sometimes. What makes, it, what, makes, what makes it exciting to be a follower of Jesus? What makes it exciting to be a Christian? And they said, well, the answers were things like, well, uh, when, when God works on me, when I see God show up in my life and I see them, Him change me and I see Him mold me and I see Him direct my life, that's exciting. And then somebody else said, well, it's exciting when God uses me then to do that in somebody else's life. That's exciting too. I asked them, I said, okay, well, what makes it not exciting? Well, sometimes church services are kind of boring. You sit there and you listen to the old songs and, you know, it was, a, it was a young person's response. Sometimes church services are boring. I'm not really good at listening to anybody for that long. Um, sometimes that's boring. And then, and then they, said, they said, the other thing that's not exciting is sometimes you, you go and you speak, this is the truth and this is what's right and this is what's wrong and, and you, get, you get, sort of get smacked around for, doing well, for saying that. One of the students said that. You know, he says, I, I try and live my life for God. And, and, uh, and sometimes when I do that on the sports field or with my teammates and I, and I put forward my best effort and I, I realize that I'm doing this for God and I'm living my life this way and I'm not going to give in to the things that they give in to and I'm not going to be negative on the field and I'm not going to... And he was saying, when I do that, sometimes my teammates give me garbage. You know, and that's not exciting. But when I think about Christianity and, and, and a lot of times when I think about the people that aren't excited... Um, actually, when I look out at a crowd on a Sunday morning or just interacting with people, um, a lot of times what I see is I see men kind of like this. You know, or like this. And I think the problem that we have is the last couple days as a, as a man, I love to build things. Uh, the last couple days, um, I had some friends over to the house, and we removed a couple of walls, and we're renovating the kitchen, and we tore out floors, and we, we took out a sliding glass door, and we built a wall, and we put in a window, and we did all this stuff together, and we're building. I don't know about you, but as a man, I love to build things. Your right, yeah? <laughs> we did. I got some splinters in my hands. But anyway, I love to build things. But I think the problem for us a lot of times is we fail to recognize that Christianity is more than just sitting still. It's more than just sitting. It's more than just listening. It's more than songs in a dimly lit room. It's more than these things. I don't have any problem with any of those things, but it's more than that. And, and the amazing thing is, is that what we're going to see and what God has been doing with Ezekiel is God says, he says, come build something with me that will last forever. Come build something with me that, that doesn't have an end. Like the kitchen's pretty neat, but 30 years, you're going to move out of that house. Somebody else is going to come in and go, what were they thinking? Let's remodel it. <laughs> and God is, God is not doing that. He's saying, I have something for you. You can build something that lasts for eternity. And one of the fun parts about it, like when I, when I think about remodeling the kitchen, for me, this is all about my bride. I want to see her smile. Right? It isn't about the process of the kitchen. But, but I do love building. I had my friends over with me, and we're shoulder to shoulder, and we're doing this thing, and we're tearing stuff out, and we're figuring out how to do it. Did you know that's part of Christianity? That God wants you shoulder to shoulder, men with other men, women with other women, us together. He wants us shoulder to shoulder, going and moving and building. Christianity is not a spectator sport. He, he wants us to be involved in the process. 
And these are things that men and women, we long for them. We long to build something that matters. We long to build something that will last. And God is saying, come do that with me. I've got a kingdom that will go on for eternity. Come do that with me. And so my guess is that if you find Christianity boring, it's because you haven't embraced the fact that God has you here as his ambassador. That's what we looked at last week. That God, you're his ambassador. God, God he, he has you here as his watchman. That's what we're going to see this week. And so, you know, when you think of Christianity, you think in terms of love and acceptance and forgiveness and so on. And those are good things. Those are things that are true of God and Jesus Christ. But they're not the whole picture. He's also a king and he's a commander and he's a builder and he's driving towards this eternal picture, this eternal kingdom. And he wants us to go shoulder to shoulder with each other as he leads and be a part of that. So Christianity is way more than what we make it. It's way more than stagnant, sit still. It's, it's a move. It's a go. And so that's what we see with Ezekiel. So what right do you have to tell me about right and wrong? How does that play into what I just said? I think the problem for a lot of us is we've bought the lie that we don't have the right to tell people the difference between right and wrong, and so we build nothing. But we do have the right to tell people the difference between right and wrong, and it doesn't come from me. I didn't make it up. But instead, the first point on your handout is that a watchman's authority to speak comes from God. If we're going to be a watchman for God, if we're going to be his ambassador, we need to recognize that my authority to tell anybody the difference between right and wrong is not something that in me. It's the fact that God has revealed the difference between right and wrong. He's commissioned me as his ambassador. He's commissioned me as his watchman. And he wants me to speak into people's lives when the opportunity presents itself. So my authority, your authority as a believer to tell the difference between right and wrong comes from God. Verse 12 says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the, be the glory of the Lord in His place. I heard the sound of the wings of living beings touching one another, and the sound of wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the authority here, when, when we think about being God's watchman, the authority comes from Him. Ezekiel is reminding us, actually the first three chapters up until right now, have been Ezekiel's vision of God. And he's reminding us that, that as God sends me forward, he's sending me forward with his authority. This God that revealed himself in, in the wheels and, in the, uh, and, and with the lightning and with the flashes and this big, huge, powerful God, he's the one who's sending me. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one through, through where I get authority to go and speak. And the cool thing is, is that we see this, we really see this in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, um, it says, He cried out, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him on the last day. For I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself has sent me and given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. 
So Jesus shows up on the scene. God eternal, God incarnate, God as man shows up on the scene. And when he says, why do I say what I say? How do I have the right to tell you the difference between right and wrong? He says, it's because I have been sent by God, my Father, to speak these things. And so my authority comes from him, and I'm going to speak forward to what he wants me to speak forward in a given situation. My authority on right and wrong comes from God the Father. Now, he says some things that I can't say. You can, if, I, I, if I come up with some clever sayings, they won't save you. If I come up with some sort of religious system, it won't save you. Jesus says, but if you believe in me, you'll be saved. So Jesus is acting as a watchman. He's stepping forward and he's saying, hey, that's dangerous. Look out. Hey, there's life over here. Come over here. And Jesus is showing us what it is to be a watchman. And he's showing us that when we receive our authority, it's not something that we come up with. I'm not here speaking on my own initiative, in my own power, with my own authority. But I speak based upon the power and authority of God's word. And that's what I'm going to bring forward. So a watchman's authority to speak comes from God. Ezekiel is saying, I, have, I had this amazing vision of God. He called me. He commissioned me. He empowers me. He gives me what to speak. I'm going to step forward and I'm going to do what God has called me to do because I'm not afraid to do it. So what, the, what right does Ezekiel have to go to these, these exiles and tell them about what's right and wrong? God sent him. God gave him truth. God moved him that direction. What right do you have to speak into your, your family or your co-workers or your neighbor's life about what's right and what's wrong? What authority do you have? It's the scriptures. It's the fact that God has revealed right and wrong through the Bible. And so when you speak into a person's life, when I speak into a person's life, the authority is not our own. It comes from God. This is huge. Uh, this isn't my preference this isn't something that I think. This isn't something that, that I've ga gathered through years of experience. It's God's truth. So our authority to speak comes from God. Verses 14 and 15, a watchman's ability to be heard comes from relationship. Verse 14 says, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I was embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. That for, Verse 14, what he's saying is, I didn't really want to go do what God told me to do. I was kind of mad that he gave me this mission where I was going to go talk to a group of people that thoroughly rejected him. He told me they weren't going to listen to me, right? So far as men's eyes are concerned, this mission is going to look like a failure. There's not going to be a bunch of people getting baptized. There's not going to be a, a big congregation. There's not going to be any of the things that people would look at and go, that's successful. I don't want that ministry. I want the one that everybody looks at and goes, look at Ezekiel, right? But he says, no, that's not, the, that's not what I'm giving you. I'm going to give you a ministry where they're not going to listen to you. And so he says, I was embittered. I didn't want to do it. I was the rage of my spirit. I was ticked off at the mission that God gave me to go share his truth with these people because they weren't going to listen. He says, but the hand of the Lord was strong on me. And because I recognize the strength and power and might of my God and I submit to his authority in my life, I submit to his lordship, I'm going to go where he wants me to go and I'm going to speak what he wants me to speak. Verse 15, Then I came to the exiles who lived by, beside the river Chabar at Tel Abib, so this little town uh, south of Babylon on the river. I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. Um, I once got to hear a man, uh, he's a um, 
Bishop Claude Alexander. I got to hear him speak on this passage. And he said that our ability to speak into people's lives comes from being among the people. Uh, The NASB says, I sat there seven days. The NIV says, I was among the people for seven days. Our ability to speak into someone's life and be heard comes from relationship. You have to know who they are and what they believe. You need to know where they're coming from and what they've been through. Right? In Ezekiel, last week we saw that he would be able to identify with this, with this people group. They're going to speak a language that you know. They have culture that you know. Their, 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 their ideas about God are the same as yours. You've been around these people all your life, Ezekiel. Go share the truth with them. But then he sits among them for seven days. And it says that, it, that just his presence... He didn't say, I, I, I talked among them for seven days. I just sat there, causing consternation among them. Just Ezekiel's presence made them uncomfortable. This guy that lives different, this guy that, doesn't, this guy that, that, that won't let pornography on his phone or his television, this guy that, that loves his wife and won't speak ill of her, this guy that, this guy that does what's right, whether people are looking or not, this guy that, that has moral standards and lives up to them, and when he fails, he owns those shortcomings, and this guy that, that lives a moral, upright life, he kind of makes me uncomfortable because I recognize some shortcomings in myself. This guy that gives glory to God, and he's not prideful and puffed up about the fact that he has a moral life, but instead he, 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 just, he just tells us about, yeah, I live this way because I have this God, right? He's different. He lives a life that, God, that gives God glory, and it makes people uncomfortable because they realize I'm not living that way. Do you have that kind of presence in your community? Where just, you just live a life for God and you do what's right and you don't give in to foul language and you don't give in to coarse jesting and you don't give in to gossip and you don't live for material possessions but for an eternal kingdom. And you don't, all the things that we know are contrary to God's character, we don't live for those things but instead we live for Him. And because we do that, because we have a firm foundation based upon the scriptures, because you live there, your life causes people to look at you and go, there's something different going on there and I don't have it. Do you have that presence in your family, in your community, in your workplace? Does the light of Christ shine out of you in those places? Now, the point of this isn't for you to beat yourself up, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. But the point of this is that when we live a life for God, it causes people to look at us and go, something's different, I think I might want it. And that's what Ezekiel does. And he has relationship. His ability to be heard comes from this relationship, this this moral, upright life where he does the right thing. He lives the right way. Um, And then uh, when he speaks, the people want to hear what he has to say because they don't see hypocrisy. They don't see inconsistency. They see this man who constantly is living the same way. And so relationship that is with God that is genuine and deep and impactful, uh, it changes the choices a person makes. If you have a relationship with God that is deep and impactful on your life, you'll make different choices. You won't look like everybody else around you. You'll look like Christ if you have a relationship with Him that is deep and impactful. Genuinely following Christ changes the decisions that I make. Now, the, thing, the, the scary thing is that superficial faith is neither helpful to the person who possesses it. If my faith is superficial, 
Yeah, I mean, Jesus is pretty neat, but I'm going to go do what I want most of the time. Yeah, Jesus is pretty neat, but I don't know about this part of his word on sexuality. I think I want to come up with my own definition there. Yeah, Jesus is pretty neat, but this whole idea that he's the way, the truth, and the life, come on, there's got to be more than just him. You know, and so we say we kind of like Jesus, but eh, not really. Or Jesus is just a crutch. You know, the, one of the busiest Sundays since the turn of the century was the Sunday after 9-11? Everything goes nuts and people go, oh my gosh, we better go to church and figure out what's going on. I think I might need God. And then things calm down and they get more reliant on themselves and they go, never mind, I don't think I needed him anyway. That's superficial faith. It amounts to next to nothing. So it's neither helpful to the person to, who possesses it nor, is, nor is it attractive to those watching your life. If your faith is superficial and God is a crutch and you can determine what's right and wrong but he doesn't get to and you don't live a life consistent with the character of Christ and, and you, you, you talk about Jesus but the only parts that you like about him are the part where he rips apart the Pharisees but you never look at the part where he's constantly giving to those in need and you, know, you, you come up with a Jesus that best suits your particular fancies. That's not attractive. And so what we see uh, in, in a uh, uh, book called Unchristian, that we see that there's this wide but not deep about Americans' uh, commitment to Christianity. Uh, there's a graphic up behind me. Uh, between 18 and 41, 65% of the people that are mosaics or busters, just people between 18 and 41, they say they've made a commitment to Jesus that's still important. The older generation, 42 and above, says 73% say they've made a commitment to Jesus that's important. 29% of younger people would say that uh, absolutely committed to the Christian faith. 48% of older people say they absolutely are. Look at the numbers of people with a biblical worldview. 3% of younger people hold a biblical worldview and 9% of olders. So when you add these numbers up, you, what, it, what it shows us is that there's 60 million people wandering around the United States that say, I'm a Christian. I like Jesus. I follow Jesus. But then when you get down to the bottom numbers about possessing a biblical worldview, we see that actually only 3 million of those people truly believe Jesus to be who he says he is in the scriptures. That means there's 57 million people wandering around the United States who have come up with their own version of Jesus. So let that sink in. 60 million people wandering around the United States. I like Jesus. 57 million of them only like the Jesus that they've come up with in, in their imagination. Three million of them will say, yes, I believe in the Jesus of the Bible. That means there's 57 million people with a superficial faith. No wonder Christianity isn't attractive anymore. Because we don't have to live it. We can come up with our own version. And if I can come up with my own version of Jesus, then you can come up with your own version of whatever. And we'll all get to the same place anyway where we please ourselves and don't care about other people. Superficial faith is not attractive. But a relationship with Jesus Christ based upon who he says he is in the scriptures, the God of the Bible, that changes lives. That impacts the way that you live. That makes you a different person. That makes you like Ezekiel. That makes you somebody who, that makes you like Christ, really. Somebody who will step forward and say, this is right, this is wrong, this is the way to find life. These other things will lead to death. Relationship with others that will seek the best of the other person. 
You live a godly life and respond to events in your life and others through the lens of a biblical worldview. And you share Christ uh, in the conversations with these people. So a watchman's ability to be heard comes from relationship. Primarily, it starts with a relationship above us with our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we take him for who he is and what he says about himself in the Bible. We don't get out the black highlighter and you know, go, go through the parts that we don't like about him and delete those. We don't add things to his name. We just take him for who he is and what he says about the scriptures and say, I want to follow him. Not just follow him, but like a disciple, I want to become like him. That's the Jesus that I want. And this Jesus that I see in the scriptures is somebody that says, I have a commission for you. I have a calling for you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to stand you on your feet. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to train you in righteousness through my word. And then I'm going to be with you as you go through your life. And this commission I have for you is one where you would lead people to deeper relationship with me, either people who don't know me. Bill Hybels talks about there's a, he, he has this scale where he says there's zero or negative 10 to zero, people who don't know Jesus. This is like, I'm an atheist. This is like, I don't know, maybe he exists. And then one to 10, where this is like, yeah, I'm following Jesus. But 10 is like, I'm sold out for a biblical worldview and the commission that he has for me, right? And so what Jesus is calling us to is, you got somebody who's a negative 10, have conversations that move them to negative eight. You, got, you, have, you know, if somebody in your life who's a negative four and they're kind of like, I don't know, maybe Jesus is something, invite them to Christ to Christ and help them in a conversation that will move them towards zero. And then you have that moment where you get to be a part of, of, of sharing Christ with them and leading them to a decision to follow him. Bill Hybels in his book, he talks about how there was this guy that I went sailing with all the time and I was constantly having conversations with him about the Lord. And then one weekend I had to work, but one of my fellow pastors went out on the boat with him and he, he, he calls me and he says, hey, the guy we've been working with for all these years, he just accepted Christ. And Bill was like, shoot, I wanted to be there for that. But, it, but then he said, but it's really cool because we got to witness him go from negative eight to positive two over the span of 10 years. Jesus is saying, build that. Come build that. And you'll get over the idea that Christianity is boring. But if you want to sit on your hands and do nothing, that's boring. I don't care what you're doing. You know, you wouldn't go to a football game and, and you wouldn't go to, a, I'm signing up for soccer and just go sit on your hands in the field. You wouldn't do that. You'd get up and you'd play the game. And Christ is calling us. He's calling Ezekiel, go, play the game. But it's more than a game. This is life and death. You're a watchman. So 16 and 17, we see a watchman alerts impending danger. 16 says, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman over the house of Israel. Wherever you, uh, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. So the job of a watchman in a city, they, was, they would be up in a tower and they'd look for impending danger. You know, somebody comes to invade the city or, you know, there's a storm coming or whatever. They would say, they, you know, they'd ring the bell, call, blow the horn, whatever it was, and they'd warn the people. This is what's coming. And God is saying, you have that role spiritually in people's lives to pay attention to the people around you. Look at their lives and go, that's dangerous. Don't go there. You're in a place that's really, really dangerous. Don't go there. 
You go down that road and you look at those images on your computer, you're going to wreck your marriage. Don't go there. You, you give in to the worldview that everything's about experiences and your husband isn't pleasing you anymore. And so I'm going to go find what I need somewhere else. Don't go there. It's dangerous. Find your fulfillment in the Lord, not in some person. You're living for material possessions and all the things that you can fill your house with and what's the next trip and you know whatever it is. Don't go there. It's dangerous. You won't find fulfillment. It'll be destructive. Right? So you, you look into a person's life and you call out the areas of danger. Young people in the room, don't buy the culture. They're telling, you, they're telling you that you can believe whatever you want and you can come up with a Jesus of your own vision or you just alert him, all, you know, abandon him altogether and, and embrace, embrace the, the sexual revolution and embrace the idea that you can change your gender and embrace this and embrace that. Don't buy it. But instead, turn to the Scriptures for truth. Holding your tongue and embracing live and let live might sound nice, but frankly, it's sin. Live and let live from a Christian is sin. Step up to the plate. Be a watchman. Call things out for what they are. Be ready for the fact that people might, might reject you pretty quick. So what does this look like? So with, with, with Christians, I think we look at, uh, at Jesus' interactions with the, with the religious elite. Jesus' interactions with the religious elite. He calls them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. Uh, he cleanses the temple in Matthew 21. The religious elite, he steps in with Christians. There's a place to go, hey, you're wrecking your marriage. Knock it off. You said you're a Christian and you said you want to follow Jesus, but you're not. Stop it. And come back to your Lord and repent. With non-believers, he takes a little bit of a different approach. You see the women at the well, and you see he eats, he, he eats with tax collectors and sinners and these people that are far from God. What's he do? He builds relationship, and incrementally from negative 8 to 0, he just sort of points them in the right direction. With a believer, with somebody who's claiming to follow God, Jesus steps in, and he'll be a little bit firm. Hey, this is not consistent with who, who you are. This is not consistent with the calling God has for you. You need to repent and let's change some things. With non-believers, he's a little bit more gentle and he slowly guides them towards knowing him. But nevertheless, a watchman alerts impending danger. 18 through 21, we see that a watchman awakens others to life. Uh, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way, that he may live, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle, a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, and his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man, and the righteous uh, should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself." I once had somebody call me about this passage, and they said, have you read this in Ezekiel? If we don't share the gospel, we're going to hell. And I went, that's not what that passage says. 
Okay, it might sound like it, that if, that if you don't step up and warn people, God's going to be like, you're going to stand before him someday, he's going to remember the time you didn't do this, and remember the time you didn't do that, get away. He's not going to do that. That's not what this passage is saying. It would be wholly inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, too. What this passage is about, um, and it's not about eternal security or the consequences of not sharing the covenant, uh, uh, the, excuse me, not sharing the gospel. This, the issue at hand in this passage is what happens to obedience or disobedience in the Mosaic covenant. That's what this passage is about. Okay? So when a righteous person turns from righteousness and does evil, God places before that individual a stumbling block. The person has already turned away from God's ways and done evil. So the stumbling block is not placed by God to cause the righteous to fall into sin. Rather, it is an obstacle to set the person's path to see how, his in, how this individual will come to respond to God's command. If the person falls, then physical death comes under the Mosaic Covenant. Some see the stumbling block as equivalent to a death sentence. If a watchman sees potential danger to a city and fails to warn its inhabitants, he is held responsible for the following destruction. So God warns Ezekiel that if he fails to warn the people of God's curse on their disobedience, he will be responsible for their death. I will hold you accountable for his blood. Ezekiel himself will then have to die for his negligence. Those who are charged with declaring God's word have a weighty responsibility to be faithful. So life and death in this passage are best understood as, not, as, as physical, not eternal, death and life. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant's concept of life and death was primarily physical. The Mosaic Covenant was given to guide those who by faith uh, in a relationship with God. Okay, that, that's what it was given for. I want, to, I want you to follow me in this way. The Hebrews were to live righteously and freely by keeping God's commands. But if they disobeyed, a shortened physical result was the normal a shortened physical life was the normal result. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20 says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and keep His commandments and statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, you... But you will not obey, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. But you will not, you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing into the Jordan to enter to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live and you and your descendants by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob to give them. So what's he saying? On the Mosaic covenant, if you are disobedient, I might pull you off the earth under the Mosaic Covenant. If you're not going to do what's right and keep these ways, then I might bring the Babylonians to wipe out your city, and you're not going to be here as long as you would have been if you would have been obedient. That's what he's saying to the Jewish people. So this passage is about what does it mean to follow God under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, there are some spiritual principles that are certainly true that we can grab hold of. The first, the first thing to grab hold of is the fact that if you're disobedient, God's probably not going to snatch you off the earth because you're not under the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, That's the first thing to grab hold of. Although, he does it in the New Testament in Acts chapter uh, when he grabs Ananias and Sapphira and they're lying about what they gave. He snatches them off. So he might do it. I don't know. 
We'll have to ask him when we get there. But it's not a command of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, But the spiritual principles to grab hold of from this is that God wants us to, to alert people to, to danger, but He wants us to awaken others to life. That's what you see here. He, awaken people to life. If they're, if they're headed towards death, tell them that's where they're going and say, over here is life. And that's the spiritual principle for us to grab hold of. As, as Christians, God is calling us to wake people up and draw them towards life. That's death over there. Don't go there. There's life over here in Jesus Christ. Come on over. Right? That's the spiritual principle to grab hold of. So just as God calls us to choose life in Him, He wants His followers to act as watchmen and call others to choose life in Him as well. Life in the new covenant is not seen in adherence to the rules of the Mosaic covenant, but what the covenant pointed to, relationship with God through the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Failure to share Jesus won't result in physical death, as described in Ezekiel and Deuteronomy, or loss of salvation, as some have wrongly taught from this passage. But it will result in the person not sharing um, and the person not shared with missing out on life as God intended it in that moment. That's what it will result in. If you have an opportunity in front of you to share Jesus Christ with someone, if I have that and I don't take it, I miss out on life as God intended it. And the person that I that he wanted me to share with, they're missing out on the message of life. So if I stand back and do nothing, I miss out on life as God intended it. Boring. Unexciting. But if I step up and I take the opportunity in front of me and I share Jesus Christ with non-Christian or Christian, there could be a Christian in your life who's living in sin and God is giving you opportunities to move into their life, come alongside them and guide them back towards life. If you don't take that opportunity, you're missing out on building something that will last forever with God. Take that opportunity, and you get to do something exciting. It'll be hard, but it'll be exciting. With a non-believer, they don't know Jesus Christ. You've taken the time to understand where they're coming from. You've built relationship. You've, you've, you've lived a consistent life. You've owned your failures. And God gives you the opportunity to speak the gospel to that person and invite them to follow Jesus as Lord. If you don't take that opportunity, you miss out on excitement and life. It's boring to not take that opportunity. But if you take it, that's exciting. And you get to, and, and the person you're speaking with will have the opportunity to enter that excitement, to leave boredom and delusion. Life apart from Christ is mostly filled with delusion. We take something that isn't really going to give us life and we tell it to give us life and it never does. Or if it does, it's momentary and it's not real life. So we're inviting them, we're breaking them out of prison, we're inviting them to follow Jesus. That's exciting. My cure for a boring Christian life is run toward the mess. Run towards the mess of other people's lives. I'm, not, I'm stealing that. For, it's the title of a book and it's really good. Run towards the mess. Run towards the, the marriage that's falling apart and, and offer Christ to the husband or the wife. Run towards the family that doesn't, that, that's running out of money and, and can't make it through the next season and help them through it. Run towards the mess of the non-believer's life who doesn't know Jesus and come alongside them and share Jesus. You run towards the mess of people's lives, you'll live an exciting life. You sit back and build a comfortable Christian bubble, you'll get bored. You run towards the mess and you'll live an exciting life. You build the, the comfortable Christian bubble and you will be bored. 
It's been said that relationships are the currency of heaven. Lisa says it all the time. I love it. Foremost is an individual's relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, Christians have no real power, only personal preferences to offer. With Christ, Christians can speak with authority on right and wrong because they are maintaining timeless truth based on God's standards. This is spelled out in two ways in Ezekiel chapter 3. First, Christians should alert those uh, in our lives of danger, the danger of living without Christ and the harm it is sure to bring on themselves and others. Second, Christians should seek to be awake and awaken others to life found in Jesus Christ. This is all to be done in love and understood that to do otherwise is unloving. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time and your word this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you are an exciting God. Uh, that you have called me to, uh, you, you have an exciting calling for me. You have an exciting commission for me. And you empower me and you, you set me on my feet and your spirit indwells me and your word guides what I need to say. You haven't left me wondering, what do you want me to do, God? But you've given me clear direction, clear path. And when we live that path, there's joy and excitement. There's danger and there could be trouble too. And there could be repercussions for living that kind of life. But I'd much rather take that than boredom. And so, God, may we embrace the calling that you have in our lives. May we embrace the great commission that we're here to go and make disciples and that we're to teach them who you are and what you said and that we're to baptize them and grow them up in knowing you as Lord. All the while, God, you want a, you're calling us for a consistent life, and so may we, may we seek to be empowered by you each and every moment in each and every area. And I pray that that's what we do this week, every moment, every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.